while I was growing up, there was this uh, phrase that was really uh, popular in pop culture. I saw it all over the place, and it was this phrase, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. I uh, used to see this on cup, you know, coffee mugs and t-shirts and, and on websites. And then I noticed like a, a lot of companies would take it and, and sort of pun it, you know, make a pun out of it. So for example, a bicycle shop might have a slogan that says, keep calm and cycle on. Or a bookstore, keep calm and read on. Uh, and I saw this phrase all over the place. And so I finally one day decided to do some research on where, why is this so popular? Where did it come from? And it turns out that this was a poster that was published in Britain during World War II by the British government, really right at, right at the beginning of World War II. And so I decided to do something that I've never done before. So I'm getting really, really uh, hip on you guys because I actually have a visual aid for the sermon today. So we're, we are really making progress here. Um, but this is what it looked like. It was this all red poster, keep calm and carry on, and it had the crown above it. You can go ahead and, Joseph, and scroll back to sermon now just because the red is a bit blinding, I think. But that's what it looked like. And what this poster was supposed to do was it was, it was produced in 1939 in preparation for World War II. What had happened was the British people were essentially threatened and informed that pretty soon there was going to be what, what they called Blitzkrieg or in German lightning war, which was aerial assault and bombings. Uh, so you can imagine the anticipation of someone basically telling you, uh, we don't know when, but pretty soon here, the town's going to start blowing up. How do you prepare your people for that? How, how, how do you help your people cope with that? And so they produced three different um, kind of motivational posters, if you will, propaganda, really. And they distributed these all throughout the British public. And again, the, the purpose of these posters were to raise the morale of the British people after they were threatened uh, with mass air attacks on their major cities. And what was interesting was among the three, this one was not exactly the most popular, but for some reason it Later on, once it went into, uh, it lost its copyright, went into the public domain, it's become far more popular today, this expression, than it was back then. Keep calm, camera. It's short, it's catchy, it's got the alliteration in it. And so it really, you know, it, it makes sense that it would become so popular. However, what's far more interesting to me is that with this phrase in my head, I believe that it is an accurate summary of Paul's uh, exhortation to his people before they have somewhat of a spiritual blitzkrieg. So if you would please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The British people were encouraged when, when, when trouble strikes, just stay calm and just continue your business. Right? Business as usual. Everything's okay. Keep calm and carry on. And I believe that we're going to see as we begin 2 Timothy chapter 3 that when we anticipate spiritual attack, when we anticipate persecution to ourselves and to our church, Paul's answer is the exact same thing. Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. On. If you would read with me, we're going to lead, read a long portion of text today. We're going to begin at the beginning of 2 Timothy 3 and read all the way through 15. And I would encourage you to read along, for these are the very words of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for, the fo- for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul has announced to Timothy, and by extension to his church, bombings. Right? He begins in verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. He's saying, get ready for bad things. Now, we need to understand context here that he is, in fact, telling Timothy to get ready for these bad things. Why do I say that? Because I have noticed that in in American Christianity, it's really easy for us to see the term last days and immediately assume that, okay, this is some end times future thing. That Paul is now in the middle of this letter, jumping thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the future and telling Timothy, by the way, almost a million years after you're dead, there's going to be really hard times coming. The term last days is not what we call an eschatological term necessarily, meaning eschatology is the study of end times. The last days, when we read it in the New Testament, is not talking about something way, way, way in our distant future. The last days simply is just not used that way. And and there's two reasons. There's an immediate context and a biblical context I want us to briefly look at before we really dive into the text. Number one, Paul is under, when Paul writes this, he assumes that Timothy is going to be experiencing the last days. Because he just says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, verse one, and then two through five, is he describes the difficulty, he describes these sinful people, and then what does he tell Timothy to do? Avoid such people. How can Timothy avoid the people who are causing the trouble if the trouble is thousands and thousands of years in his future? Timothy is going to be in the last days, and he's going to be experiencing the people who are making the last days so difficult, and he's supposed to be avoiding those people. Paul is writing to something that Timothy himself is going to be involved with. Timothy is going to be around these people, encountering these people, and that's why Paul says, avoid them. He's talking about something in Timothy's future, but it's not in our future. 
There's another way to see this. Keep your marker here and turn to the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews is right at the end of all of Paul's letters. So you just turn over past Titus, past Philemon, and get to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the author of Hebrews begins this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So how does the author of Hebrews define the last days for us? Is it something way, way in our future that we haven't entered into yet? No, the last days began with Jesus. Jesus was living in the last days. The, the days long, long ago were defined by the prophetic age with Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets. But once Jesus showed up on the scene, we now entered into the last days. Because the author of Hebrews says, back then, long ago, God would communicate through prophets. But in these last days, the last days that we're currently in, he has spoken to us. He has spoken in the past by his son. So the last days began with Jesus. I would argue they ended at 70 AD, but this isn't a sermon on end time, so I'll just uh, leave that for you to mull over. But the point is this. Turn back to 2 Timothy. Here's what I, the, the, the point that I want to really push here is that Paul is not trying to warn Timothy of a future event thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future. He's trying to warn Timothy about something that's coming to Timothy. You're in the last days, and in these last days, it's going to get really bad. This is something for Timothy in these last days. Now, that does not mean that this has no whatsoever uh, application to us. Is everything we read in the New Testament, when Paul writes to Timothy or when he writes to uh, Ephesus or whatever, we, we, it's our job to take that message and apply it and understand how it applies to us. So this is not to say that you will never experience persecution, you will never experience, that was just for Timothy's days. No, Paul's not claiming that. He's not saying that persecution is going to end with Timothy. But he's, I, I just want us to see, he is telling Timothy, you are going to endure horrible things. And so our job now as we approach this text is to see, how does Paul tell Timothy to endure persecution, to endure difficult times, so that when we inevitably go through our persecution and our difficult times, we know what to do. Because notice, Paul does include all of us in verse 12. Just briefly jump ahead and look at verse 12 for a moment. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul's saying, yeah, Timothy's about to go through some intense persecution, but this isn't just because, because Timothy is so unique. This is because Timothy's trying to live a godly life, and anyone who tries that is going to face persecution. Godliness will bring persecution to you. And, and this is a really helpful verse also for us to understand that uh, it, it really is a true statement when we talk about persecution coming in all different shapes and sizes. In other words, when we as American Christians, this, I, I see this scenario a lot, we'll talk about persecution. I was persecuted for my faith or I was persecuted. And there's almost this temptation to, for the listener to sort of roll their eyes. Because when we think of persecution, what do we typically think of? We think of our brothers and sisters in Syria and Sudan who are literally being beheaded and chopped into bits and thrown into prison. And that's not happening to us. 
right? Like, okay, your family blocked you on Facebook. And so, so we just want to laugh, like, that, that's not persecution, but it is. If, if it's not persecution, then Paul got this wrong, because there are lots of people who have lived godly lives who have never once been killed for it. So Paul has this, a, a much broader understanding of persecution. Sometimes it comes in the form that it came to him, which is stoning him nearly to death and imprisoning him and beheading him. But sometimes it comes through more social ways, like your family abandoning you or losing your job. Uh, these, but these are legitimate forms of persecution, and that's the only way to make sense of the truth of this text, that no matter who you are, if you attempt to live a godly life, the culture around you won't like it. Some cultures may not respond as aggressively as other cultures, but the culture won't like it. Godliness is a nuisance. It's offensive. It bothers the ungodly. So Paul is writing to Timothy about something Timothy is going to endure, but this has direct application to us. And as I began in my introduction, I really believe that it can be summarized in that old British saying, keep calm and carry on. What do we do when the world around us seems to be falling apart? Keep calm and carry on. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's look at this first aspect to keep calm. He begins by announcing that these horrible, terrible things are going to happen. And, and I think with a lot of them, we don't really need a lot of explanation. Verses 2 through 4, are, Paul uses, the, he, he gives us this huge vice list, and I think most of them are fairly self-explanatory. To love yourself more than you love God. To love money more than you love God. Pride, arrogance, abusiveness, disobedience, ungrateful, heartless, all these things, I think, I think they're fairly self-explanatory. Paul is saying that people, people within your church and outside of your church, let's just put it this way, are going to get really bad. That's Timothy's blitzkrieg. People are going to get really bad. People inside and outside the church are going to get really bad. There, there's a couple that I do think we need to just clarify briefly before pressing on. And it's found in verse 5 and in verses 6 and 7. So after this long vice list of sins, he moves into verse 5 saying that, there's these, that these people will have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. What does that mean? Well, that tells us that the, the, it doesn't necessarily say this about every single person necessarily that Timothy might encounter in these last days. But generally speaking, these are going to be religious-looking people. They, they are likely even people who claim the same faith as Timothy. These might be professing Christians or at least highly religious people who maybe put on kind of an austere or they, they, they look as if they are pious and religious and godly, but you don't have to peel back that many layers to see that these people are anything but godly. They have this appearance of godliness, but then Paul says, what do they do? They deny its power. What does that mean? Well, that's a description of the opposite of everything that just came. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. True godliness will actually change you. Right? If, if, you're, if you're a godly person, if you pursue true godliness, 
If you truly come to Christ, receive his righteousness, receive his spirit, and are sanctified and pursue godliness, there's a power there that changes you so that people can't honestly describe you as a lover of self, a lover of money, proud, arrogance, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, etc., etc., etc. So Paul's saying these people might look godly on the outside, but there's nothing effective within them. There's no power within them that's actually changing them and making them truly godly. They claim godliness, but they deny its power because they live in such a way that proves there is no godliness to be found in these people. So in other words, that's just basically a phrase of saying these people are hypocrites. They're hypocritical, likely highly religious people who may, might make it look as if they are godly, but when you examine their life, you see there is no power within them. Nothing's changing them. The true power of godliness, they have rejected. These are sinful, hypocritical, religious people. And then he says in verse 6, so he tells Timothy to avoid them, and then he says in verse 6, he gets even more specific. That among this group of wicked hypocritical, ungodly people, there will be some who go so far to do something very specific. Verse 6, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Well, what's going on there? In a certain sense, we don't know a whole lot, but the general point is this, is somehow these false teachers are manipulating guilt-ridden, isolated women. These are women who have something in their past, have lived their lives in such a way that they are overwhelmed with guilt. And one of the things you'll find is when people are overwhelmed with guilt, they will latch on to almost anything that promises them freedom from that guilt. We see this a lot on, in a physical sense with the prosperity gospel. When preachers go around the world telling people that it's God's plan that you will be rich and abundant and if you just give me all your money, God will make you rich and he will make you happy. You know what's interesting? You want to know who are the people overwhelmingly buying into that message? Poor people. Very rarely do rich Wall Street CEO businessmen, you know, the stereotypical rich person, very rarely do they fall prey to Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes and prosperity preachers. Why is it that, that these rich people never, hardly ever fall for this stuff? Well, it's because they're not desperate. But suddenly you go to Africa, where you have single mothers of 10 children, all of them sick, no clothes, no food. She doesn't know how she's going to feed someone. And some rich white guy with a bunch of money says, here's how I did it. I just gave all my stuff away. And God, so they say, okay, anything to feed my children, take it desperate people, you know the phrase desperate times call for desperate measures. And so here's spiritually what's going on. These are women who are so drowning in guilt and shame that they will latch on to almost anything that comes and says, I've got a cure for you. And so these false teachers looking for an audience will go and find these women burdened by sin and led astray by various passions and they will manipulate them and use them and build a following. And so we see, we saw this in 1 Timothy, how pastors treat women is especially important. That pastors do not use their charisma, their oratory skills to manipulate lonely, guilt-ridden women. And Paul tells Timothy that that happens. And then he even describes them in verse 7, that they are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. This is such a profound statement. It's not as popular anymore, but when I was growing up, I was constantly hearing the secular world talk about open-mindedness. 
It was like the, the big, when I was in high school and a little bit in the college, the big buzzword against Christians to not Christians was they were close-minded. We need to be open-minded. You want to know what open-mindedness is? Open-mindedness is always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. G.K. Chesterton once described, the purpose of an open mind is the same purpose as an open mouth. It's meant to close on something. If you're perpetually open, imagine trying to eat with a perpetually open mouth. You won't eat. You'll starve to death. You open your mouth briefly, but it's meant to close on something. So we, there's a sense in which an open-mindedness is good because we want to be open to the truth, to receive the truth. But once we found it, it's no longer our jobs to be open. You close on it. And when you're perpetually open, you become someone that's always learning and never closing on the truth. This is why Paul in Ephesians says the purpose of pastors, God gave pastors and teachers to the church to help keep people, as he says in Ephesians chapter 4, from being carried to and fro by the wind and waves of doctrine. In other words, Paul doesn't want us to be the kind of people who just everything we hear, we believe. Oh, I saw a YouTube video and they said this about the Bible. Must be true. Oh, I was listening to this podcast and they said this about the Bible. Oh, that must be true. You know, I read this one book. I have no idea who the author is, no idea where he was trained, no idea if he has any accountability, no idea if he has a church holding me. I just, I have no idea who this author is, but he said this about the Bible and so I'm just going to believe it. These are people always learning and never closing on the truth. And that's what false teachers want because their doctrine is inconsistent because it isn't true and so they want gullible people who just go with the flow. And Paul says, no. Paul wants us to be people who are not always learning and never coming to the truth. He wants us to be people who see the truth, who see it in the word and close on it. And then I'm not moving. I don't care who says it, I don't care where it came from, I'm not moving. But again, the whole point here is these are women who, because of their vulnerable circumstances, are being manipulated by these false teachers. And so that's the blitzkrieg. But in this first section, I really see Paul sort of subtly telling Timothy to stay calm. And why do I say that? Well, for a number of reasons. But number one, there is something calming about being warned. When you know bad times are coming, you're more prepared for them. That's calming. It's, it's calming to have people tell you, okay, listen, here, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, prepare yourself. That's always a calming thing. You, typically, when we get truly panicked in life, when we're truly panicked and we, we're sort of losing our cool, it's when unexpected tragedies happen. It's when unexpected calamities happen. But if you could have someone just say, okay, listen, tomorrow this, this, and this is going to happen. You are going to go into tomorrow with a totally different mindset than you would have gone into it having no idea. There is something calming about just saying, listen, listen, brace yourself. Brace yourself. I, I, I remember one night when we were sleeping, I, I felt something wrestling on my head. And I was kind of half asleep and I, I, I panicked. I, I, I lost it. I was like, there's a bug. And I threw it off and I got it and I was in a total panic. And it was just this little tiny little bug was on me. If somebody would have said, hey, listen, I'll give you $5 if you let me put this bug on your head. You, how, how would I respond? And panic. So yeah, go for it. 
So why is it that this little tiny bug on my head when I was sleeping, why did I fall into a sheer pit? I wasn't expecting it. I just felt something, and I didn't know how to respond. You see, there's something calming, there's something helpful about just saying, listen, just expect it, it's going to happen. So Timothy is not going to lose his mind. He's not going to panic. Oh my goodness, the world around me is falling apart. What is going on? No, Paul says, I told you this would happen. It's okay. I told, we knew this was coming. We've, we've budgeted for this. We've planned for this. We knew it was coming. There's something calming about being told and warned that something would happen. And, and, and similarly to that, related but a little bit different is this. That Paul also reminds Timothy in this that this isn't new stuff, right? Like uh, all this stuff that's happening, it's not new because look at what he says. Who does he hearken back to in verse 8 as an analogy of what's happening? He says, this is going to happen to you and guess who else it happened to? Some guy way in the future because the times are getting so bad. They've been really good, but now they're getting bad. Is that Paul's perspective? No, <laughs> they've always been bad, <laughs> Because look at who he uses in verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Janus and Jambres, the Bible doesn't ever tell us specifically who these are. So we have to appeal to outside sources and traditions. And um, sometimes they're, they're, they're appealed to, they're said to have been different people. But the overwhelming tradition within the Jewish culture was that these were the two magicians at Pharaoh's side. So when Aaron and Moses were doing their miracles, the, the Old Testament tells us that Pharaoh had magicians who were trying to match those miracles. And that is most likely who these two people are. These are people who thought they could stand up to Moses and prove we're just as powerful, we're just as influential, we're just, they, they opposed Moses. And Paul says, Timothy, what happened to Moses is going to happen to you. And then Paul even uses himself as an example. Look at verse 10. You, have, you however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. These were the cities that surrounded Ephesus, where Timothy was, which persecutions I endured. So here's Paul's message. He's saying this twofold. He's saying, Timothy, listen, I'm trying to prepare you now. Don't panic. Bad things are going to happen. That's calming. Okay, I'm ready. And he says, oh, and by the way, you don't need to panic. God's people have been going through this forever and it's just, they've been just fine. Right? Do, do you think Moses had it easy? We, we like to think of the future as being like, that's when it's going to get really bad. Oh, things are going to get so bad. So what are we saying? Was the past a breeze? How many people, you don't have to actually, this is rhetorical. How many people in here would give up the earthly ministry God has called you to and replace, trade it with Moses? Moses had it hard. Moses' life wasn't easy. Moses went through difficult, difficult times. Here's what I'm saying. We go through really, really difficult times too, but at least we have stuff like deodorant and toothpaste and showers and doctors. Moses went through all that time way back then. Moses' life was rough. He did not have an easy existence. How many of you want Paul's ministry? Hated by your people, nearly stoned to death, imprisoned everywhere you go, eventually beheaded? How many people, you know, how condescending would it be to tell Paul, oh my goodness, Paul, the times are getting so bad in the 21st century, you have no idea. <laughs> Paul's thinking, no, you don't have any idea. You see, there is something comforting and calming when you go through crisis to know other people have been here. 
Even when you get like maybe a horrible uh, medical diagnosis, there's just something inherently calming about thinking, you know what? Thousands of people have had this. I'm not the first dad to be diagnosed with this. I'm not the first mother of children to be diagnosed. Lots of people have been here. What's truly scary would be getting a diagnosis from the doctor saying, this is really bad and we've never seen it before. I don't know what to tell you. I, this is brand new. This is, I have never seen this before. That's, that's a scary diagnosis. And Paul's not saying that about persecution. That's the exact opposite of the message. He's not saying, listen, Timothy, things are going to get really bad like you wouldn't believe He's saying, no, things are going to be bad for you just like they've been bad for me. Just like they've been bad for Moses. Just like they've been bad for all who desire to live a godly life. There's something comforting in knowing, listen, God's people have been here before. And oftentimes they've been through far worse than we've been through. So we can handle it. He's trying to calm Timothy down. Listen, you're prepared. Bad times are coming, but you know it. And we've been here. We've, we, we've gone through this with you. There's just something calming about expectation and preparedness. There's something calming about knowing other people have been here. And, and lastly, the last thing I'll say on this point is Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so what does that tell us? That tells us that persecution, difficult times, is not necessarily a sign that you're doing something wrong. It's really easy for us to interpret terrible circumstances as, okay, I've done something wrong, so God must be really giving it to me right now. I've really messed up, and that's why my circumstances are so bad. That's the heart of the prosperity gospel. You're poor because you don't have enough faith. You haven't been giving enough. But Paul doesn't say the wicked people will be persecuted. He says the godly people will be So the third thing is there's something calming about knowing, listen, I know things are really bad for me right now, but that's not a reflection of my ministry. That's not a reflection that I'm a bad pastor or that my church is a bad church because things just seem so hard for us. Paul was a godly man. Not a perfect man, but a godly man. Moses was a godly man. Not a perfect man, but a godly man. And they still endured persecution. So when Timothy goes through persecutions, when we go through persecutions, we need to, to, to stomp the enemy out of our minds the moment he tries to get us to think, I must be doing something wrong. Paul is very subtly trying to tell Timothy to keep calm. You're not doing things wrong. The church has been through this before. You're expected, you're prepared, you're ready for it. There's something all throughout this text that just subtly screams, keep calm. When our world is falling apart, when you turn on the news and every single news station you go to is bad news, here's my message for you. Keep calm. When you hear about what our local governor is doing and when you hear about, oh, I'm, I'm watching these debates and they want to do this and they want to take this and they want to do this and everything's going... Keep calm. We're not going through anything that God's people haven't victoriously marched right through before. Expect it. Don't expect an easy life. Don't expect a comfortable life. Expect, embrace suffering. Keep calm. It's okay. But then there's another aspect to it. This aspect of carry on. So I stay calm, but what do I do? Well, look at what he says in verse 10. 
You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Which, by the way, if we can go back a minute, that's kind of another keep calm thing, right? God got me through it. He'll get you through it too. Nonetheless, he tells Timothy in verse 10, you have been following my teaching. You've been following this. You've been following that. And then look at what he tells them to do in verse, uh, forgive me, in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he tells them in verse 10 that you have been following my conduct and my teaching and my way of life. And then he tells them in verse 14, as for you, you just continue in what you've learned. You just continue in what you've believed. So what is he telling Timothy here? He's telling him just to carry on. The same thing that Timothy is called to do if all the world was right. Imagine there was no persecutions, everybody was Christians, everything is just dandy. What would Timothy's job be? To follow the apostolic instruction, to pursue patience and love and steadfastness, and to continue believing the Bible. If everything was good, that's what he would be called to do. But things aren't good. Things are really, really bad. So what is he called to do? The same thing. Whether the sun is shining or the rain is pouring, whether he's on the mountain high or the valley low, Timothy's job is just to do what he's always been doing. Just keep following Paul. Just keep holding fast to that biblical sacred teaching that you've learned your entire life. Just keep doing what you've been doing. You don't, the church doesn't need to change its strategy because of persecutions. The church doesn't need to begin changing its doctrine or changing its philosophies because things change. No, our job, whether rain or shine, is just to believe the Bible and pursue righteousness. When the world is crumbling all around us, we believe the Bible and we pursue righteousness. When everything is as it should be and everyone's happy, we believe the Bible, we pursue righteousness. Every single day for the Christian, it's business as usual. Turn on the news, everything's good today. Okay, it's time to love the Lord and obey him. Turn on the news, everything is terrible today. It's time to love the Lord and obey him. Our circumstances don't matter. We just carry on. We keep doing what we're supposed to do. But as for you, just continue in what you have learned. Continue in following after me. Timothy was given the advice in the midst of persecution and danger in troubled times, Timothy, if we could boil it down, was essentially said this. Keep calm. Carry on. Follow the apostolic example. Obey the scriptures. Stick with the faith you grow up with. Expect persecution. It's not new. It's not something God hasn't delivered me from. It's not something God hasn't delivered the church from. You're just fine. Business as usual. Keep calm and carry on. In conclusion, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter is another epistle that was written to a people that were like those in Ephesus were already enduring persecution and persecution was about to intensify. 
So 1 Peter is just, just like the pastoral epistles, is just littered with, 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 with uh, helpful godly advice on how to endure and handle persecutions. And look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though it were something strange that were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Beloved, don't be surprised when the world tests you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. And don't think this is strange. Don't be surprised and expect it. Sound familiar? Keep calm. But instead rejoice that you are now walking in the footsteps of Christ and you have that hope and remembrance that one day his glory will be revealed and he will put an end to all of this. Sin, suffering, death, his glory will drive it out. So in the meantime, don't be surprised. Don't find it strange. Keep calm and carry on. 